to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. This is your weekly podcast, delivering you the insight, ideas, and inspiration to successfully change and transform in our ever-evolving world of retail. Enjoy listening. Hi, welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. My name is Oliver Banks, and I'm delighted to be your host here on the show, as well as your guide to help you successfully change and transform your retail operations and operating models. Thank you for tuning in. This one is episode 152, number 152. There's lots of talk about how fast retail is changing right now. But if you were to take a critical viewpoint on that, you would say it is a very in-the-moment viewpoint. It does not look at time as a, an ever-expanding continuum, right? But if we were to consider the full breadth of time, we would look back at retail's history a little bit more. And there are plenty of lessons to learn from retail's history as well. And that's why I'm really excited about this episode, because today we are going to be diving into the history of retail and how the history of retail can help us understand opportunities for today and tomorrow, as well as avoid some of the challenges where we've seen other companies fall over and pay the ultimate price. And of course, we don't want that to happen any more than it needs to. But to help us open the proverbial retail history book, I'm delighted to welcome Graham Salt to the show. He is a champion of the high streets, as well as understanding digital marketing. And he's a respected media commentator, recognised both as a retail influencer, as well as appearing on lots of TV and radio and in the press many, many times, whether it's on the BBC or ITV or in newspapers like The Guardian or or, or publications such as Forbes and Retail Week. He's based in Gateshead in the north of England, but operates over the whole UK. And his business, cannyinsights.com, works with independent and multiple retailers on the high street and online. And he has a good understanding in terms of working with landlords and local authorities and business associations and the business improvement districts or bids as well. He's part of the High Street Task Force and he is an expert there and he's a fellow of the Institute of Place Management. And he's also rather well known for his passion about Woolworths, which we do dive into for sure in this conversation. Show notes for today are at obandco.uk slash 152. That's obandco.uk slash 152. So let's jump straight on into the conversation. Enjoy listening. So I'm delighted to welcome Graham Salt to the Retail Transformation Show. Graham, how are you? Hi, Ollie. It's fantastic to have you here and really excited for our conversation today. But yeah, a very warm welcome to the podcast. And of course, thank you for appearing on the Retail Transformation Live virtual stage last year as well, of course. Thank you. So today we're going to be diving into definitely one of your specialist topics, and that is all around retail history, which I think is really fascinating and probably doesn't get the airtime perhaps that it should do, which is why... I'm keen to dive into it today. But I suppose my first question, Graham, is 
is retail history relevant in any way? We've obviously seen huge changes in things like e-commerce and various digital transformations, etc., and omnichannel and social media and blah, blah, blah. Is what has happened already, the retail history, is it relevant? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, <laughs> and people might well ask, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm tweeting a picture of a, of a 1930s Woolworths or whatever, and I'm banging on about the black granite stall rises or whatever else there might be, they might question, okay, it's, it's interesting. It's, a, it's a good story, but how does it matter? And actually, I think it's the Woolworths thing, which is where the whole retail history thing started for me, because back in 2008, it was, it was when I was starting to get into my kind of retail career, really, as a mm. as a consultant, and Woolworths was collapsing. It didn't require a great deal of insight to realise that it was a big deal. You know, it, it was a it was an iconic retailer. It had been around for almost a century, and suddenly it was vanishing from over 800 high streets in one go. And the more that I started to dig into the history of Woolworths, the more that I realised quite what an important part of the retail landscape it was. Mm. And not just in terms of, of how it had traded through the years, in terms of evolving from uh, from the counters into the self-service and back in the early days being a, a very early kind of single price retailer, a bit like Poundland was. But I think also in terms of its architectural legacies. So you've got this amazing footprint of all these purpose-built Woolworths buildings, which although they aren't in use as Woolworths anymore, are in, in most cases still there. Mm. And what I found is that by using Woolworths as a, as a window on the high street, so looking at what those 800 stores were becoming, it kind of provided a, a really interesting framework for looking at the high street and for looking at how places change. And the more that I've got involved in working in different places, the more that kind of principle really has has been valuable of just kind of understanding you know, where the changes that are happening now fit in the kind of timeline of things. Are we seeing that things are changing in a kind of steady, evolving way? You know, is it a more disruptive, sudden change? You know, are there things happening now that are drawing from the past and, and trying to reinvent it mm. or be inspired by it? So I think yeah, anyone who follows my tweets will see that um, I quite often try and draw from the history of retailing and the history of places, uh, because so often uh, it gives us, I think, some useful clues as to how those places might develop in the future. Definitely. And I think as we as we cast our mind back, I mean, retail has been around for a few thousand years. I don't know the exact date as to the start of retail, but I guess slightly more recently. Retail and place has been a key part for for community, for socialising. I'm sure we can all reflect on time as kids and as sort of meet, meeting up and going around the shops or going out to, you know, restaurants or whatever. But has that changed? Is given elements like social media, do we still put place and and retail as a sort of a socialising and community centrepiece? Is that still so? prevalent as it was yeah um i think certainly like you um you know i can recall you know, all kinds of uh, of retail memories from my childhood and <laughs> you know, often those are rooted you know, in the in the places where they happen the kind of you know, independent toy shop or or indeed going into woolies or whatever else it was but i think certainly probably in the kind of 80s and 90s in particular 
we did see this kind of clone town thing happening mm. where perhaps retail almost got divorced from uh, from place and you had these almost ridiculous uh, shopping centers dropped into places sometimes with all the you know all the same brands that you would see everywhere else and you could literally step inside this center and effectively have no idea where you were because it didn't have any sense of place or, or kind of any particular sense of being local or distinctive and i suppose the c word covid is is bound to appear in every <laughs> podcast after a while we just bleep that bit out <laughs> If you want. But I think one of the things that we have seen in the last year or two, uh, which is already kind of building on what was happening anyway, is that we have seen more of a sense of people wanting places to mean something again. And I think COVID has accelerated that in terms of reminding us of the importance of these places where we live, uh, you know, all the community stuff that goes on. Uh, the relationships that we have with the kind of shopkeepers and the businesses and the things we do in these places. And there's certainly a sense now, I think, that people are wanting those, you know, more interesting local experiences, you know, as the big name stores in many cases pull out of, of, of towns and cities. Mm. Mm. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you, when you, when you start to dive into it and, I think there's this sort of general feeling that history has elements of a cyclical nature and it feels like that's mm. that's at play here. If we could go back to perhaps Woolworths as a bit of an example in terms of how you have understood what 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 happened there is it's quite an iconic and arguably the first sort of major retail failure shall we say. Mm. Um there've obviously been quite a few more recently. But what sort of lessons can we take from the history of 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 a like a Woolworths. Yeah, it's hard to get away from the timing of Woolworths collapse. So I think it it's one of those things that if it if it had maybe lasted a bit longer, it would probably have still been around in in some form or another. Because literally, the end of two thousand and eight, it was probably the worst time for anything to collapse, and for the scope of there being anybody else out there to buy it. Mm. But I think fundamentally, uh, Woolworths is a retailer that had kind of lost sight of its heritage, perhaps. It had started off back in uh, in 1909 as a single-price retailer, effectively selling everything at threepence and sixpence. You know, it had had a very clear value message. Yep. You know, it was it was kind of really kind of innovating in the UK market when it came here from the US. It was offering something different and exciting. And I think um, over the years, it had lost sight of that kind of backstory, it had evolved into a business that was neither uh, quality nor value, and um, you know, and there were other businesses, you know, all your home bargains and Wilco and things, who were coming up, you know, on the rails and and having a much clearer value message. Mm. And I think also there's all you know all the kind of stuff going on in the background around uh, how the business was was stripped of its assets over the years. So it went from it went from owning you know, all its freeholds to owning no freeholds, mm. and uh, I think I calculated that if um, that the that the freeholds that it owned uh, in 1957 would have been worth about half a billion pounds, you know, in in modern money if it had still had them. Mm. And instead, what you had is uh, is Woolworths uh, trapped in some crazy long leases 
on these dodgy old properties that it had built in the first place, but had had flogged uh, in the eighties. Yep. And it wasn't a very sustainable model because it was paying ridiculous rents on properties that, in many cases, you know, weren't in very good condition. Mm. And we've seen that kind of thing so many times with different retailers, you know, who have flogged their crown jewels effectively and ended up trapped in a cycle of having to fork out costs that they just can't afford. So I think there were all kinds of of dodgy decisions over the years. And it was a brand that clearly many people cherish the uh, Woolly brand. Yes. Uh, it's a brand that people loved and, and that was expressed when it uh, it went away. But it it wasn't really cared for mm. you know, over the years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, like yourself, got very warm memories of, of you know, walking up and down the toy aisle at Woolworths. <laughs> you know, I want this one, I want that one, right? <laughs> exactly. Everyone has that. And it might be the toys or the records or, or the pick and mix or whatever it is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, think thinking about some of those elements you've just pulled up there in terms of, you know, flogging the assets, having a sort of a, a more tired retail proposition, etc. Do we see those lessons happening again and again, do you think? Or do you think the retail industry as a whole has learned? No, I, 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 th- I think unfortunately it doesn't. It doesn't learn because if you, if you look at, uh, at some of the recent collapses or, or the more recent collapses, uh, businesses like BHS and, uh, and Debenhams and an Arcadia group, you can kind of draw the same kind of parallels. Mm. You know, these are all brands that used to mean something and stand for something. And then over the years, um, the stores have maybe got a bit tired. The product range has maybe lost sight of what customers are wanting. And, and you've had agile, better rivals coming up and, and offering customers a better experience. And I think it, it's sad because you can you often spot these failures coming uh, even before the retailers can because you know, ultimately it's it's just businesses that haven't been loved enough and I guess sometimes it it reaches a point where there just you know isn't the money in the business to do the things that are needed um, mm. which I guess is why sometimes uh, if you can Obviously, it's controversial when you have all these uh, CVAs and administrations and things. Yes. But sometimes, if you if you can clear the slate and start again and and reinvent the business almost from scratch, you know, it it might be that you can kind of bring it back to life in a way that isn't possible when you've got this huge sprawling underinvested estate that is really too much for anyone to handle. Mm. I think it's an interesting point around the sort of the love because I think. Again, some of these, particularly the heritage retail brands, have got some fantastically passionate people that perhaps have been, you know, working there for years and years and years. And it's how do you, how do you best take that passion and 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 put it into action? Right? It's you, you know what you what you described as some of the challenges are arguably the basics of of retailing right and we forget that and naturally that passion can break through that and engage and energize customers that ultimately will put their hands in the wallets if it's a, a an exciting shopping experience that is is pleasant it's not it, you know it, it is about getting those basics right it's a really important point and, and certainly i think one of the things that came through um you know 
with Woolworths and, and Debenhams and others is just, you know, what a fantastic asset the staff were you know, in those businesses mm. and how many, you know, brilliantly uh, talented retailers there were yes. in those businesses. And, and it's borne out by the fact that so many of them have, have, uh, have quite quickly got themselves into, into other retail roles. They've been snapped up and rightly so. Mm. But I think, again, often we don't necessarily see these big chains appreciating the quality of the talent that they've got and letting that really kind of be unleashed. And the best retailers, I suppose, are, are those that do treat their staff well and, and give the local stores a bit more freedom to kind of tap into all those local trends that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. As there are some chains that I work with in, in the places where I'm working, where the staff, uh, the store managers, you know, in the, in the branches maybe don't have a great deal of leeway over what they can do in terms of their marketing or in terms of, of their messaging or getting involved in, in local community things. Whereas other retailers are very good at, um, at devolving things down to the, uh, to the branch mm. and allowing it to really become, um, a more active part of the community. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'd like to take a bit of a, a pivot in the conversation. We've been talking about arguably learning from the failures yes. of retail. What can we learn from retail history's success stories equally? Yeah, um, I think it's quite interesting if you look at some of the businesses that, that are trying to draw from their heritage. So at the most basic level, it might be when you have a, a brand like Marks and Spencer's or House of Fraser or Morrison's that puts their date of establishment in their logo. Mm. And we've seen quite a lot of that lately. It's, uh, it's been quite interesting to see businesses that are, are kind of showing that they're proud of their longevity. Mm. But you do then have to make sure that you back that up with, uh, with actions that reflect your <laughs> values um, and, and that you are kind of you're acting in a way that kind of celebrates and respects that heritage. And I think um, you know, it's fair to say that that, that it's a mixed it's a mixed picture in terms of how well retailers do that mm. i suppose one good example of a retailer that has has reinvigorated itself by looking backwards is the co-op mm. uh, the cooperative group has obviously in recent years brought back its um its blue cloverleaf logo it was a logo that was prevalent i think in the 60s and 70s and was then replaced by a succession of you know of other faces over the years yeah but actually in in revisiting that kind of blue logo, uh, the co-op group seems to have really rediscovered its its mojo, if you like. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's reminded it about what the co-op is for. It's, it's, it's about being rooted in its communities. It's about giving back to those communities through the kind of charities that it supports. And I think, um, I think the messaging around what the co-op is and what it stands for has never been stronger. Uh, and that's really positive. And that has partly been inspired by this whole process of of the rebranding which draws from that kind of backstory and mm. i think uh, it's a it's a really nice example and you know even better the stores that have been rebranded look fantastic because yes definitely it happens to be a logo that that works incredibly well uh, on all kinds of of buildings so again it, it's it's quite nice because uh, almost by fluke is also reminded us of of quite how many wonderful heritage buildings the co-op still occupies 
Mm. And again, like Woolworths, in many cases, it, it built these things. It was, it was local cooperative societies who, uh, who built these buildings. And, and in many cases, the co-op still trades from them uh, for its food stores. Mm. And these new blue logos, you know, often allow the building around it to, uh, to really kind of shine and remind us of, of quite how long these businesses have, have been part of their communities. I think that's a really good example of a positive rebrand, shall we say, where a rebrand is more than, you know, just a logo, which mm. arguably we've definitely seen lots of examples of in the past, right? Where we've got new branding, <laughs> we're spending millions yeah. of pounds, you know, refitting all our faces, etc. But actually going back in to the, the, the heritage and the sort of some of the founding values and so on can be hugely powerful, as, as you've just described. I think that's a great example. Thank you very much. We, we also talk of change and the fast pace of change in the retail industry. And obviously over the past, what's it, a year and a half, that message has arguably been amplified even more. But is that true? Have we seen times of such significant change in, in retail before? Um, I certainly like to kind of use the line... Um, evolving not dying i think it's uh it's, it's our friend uh ian nicholson uh who works in oxford who, yeah. who came up with that kind of hashtag ah, and, it's a, okay. <laughs> and it's an important one because i think uh, we do see so much about the death of the high street and, and i think you have to put it in perspective i you know, i often argue that yes the pace of change that we're seeing now is is probably uh faster than it has been at any time before but the fact that we have changed, you know, isn't a new thing at all. If um, again, if you if you look back at those kind of old postcards of Woolworths and the kind of street scenes yes. and the and the brands that were there and the kinds of retailers that were there, um, you have all kinds of of shops from back in the day that no longer exist. Uh, you know, all your kind of umbrella shops and all kinds of crazy things yes. that used to be on the high street. And so, of course, the high street of now is different to that of the 80s, which was different to that of the 50s, which was different to that of the 20s. Yes. And so it's always changed. And I think in some ways it's, it's, it's reassuring to remind ourselves that, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. It is part of, of how you, you know, any industry works, really. Mm. But, but, but at the same time, of, of course, we have to make sure that, that what we offer you know, in our shops and businesses and, and places is, uh, is meeting uh, current customers' needs. And so um, I think by and large, we see lots of examples of, of, of many businesses that are doing that really well, that, that are you know, you're always evolving, always innovating and, and, and pivoting, as you say. And, and, um, and we've seen lots of that over COVID. Mm. You know, really agile businesses that, that have worked incredibly hard to keep offering customers what is required at the time. And then you've got... Uh, other businesses that maybe haven't um, evolved in quite the way that they need to. And and then usually by the point that they start evolving, it's, uh, it's too little too late. Yes, I, th I think that's that's particularly true. And you raise an excellent point. There were lots of different stores in yesteryear, you know, umbrella shops, but lots, lots of other types of stores, which you just don't see anymore. And apologies to any umbrella retailers that are listening in. <laughs> I'm sure there must be one or two somewhere. Con congratulations on doing the amazing job. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, we we talk now about uh, the likes of Amazon and 
you know, it's like a few years ago, the supermarkets in particular who were blamed uh, in air quotes for destroying retail companies. But actually, this has been happening for a long time. And it is, as you say, about evolving and keeping up with the times and keeping relevant and continuing to, to, to change and transform ultimately to keep your finger on the pulse. Yeah, absolutely so. Uh, I think if you um, if you look at some of the big names that, that were growing in the in the seventies or eighties, they were destroying independence, maybe, and mm. uh, and gobbling up per share that had previously been you know, uh, independent retail, like the rise of B and Q, for example, in the eighties, and and kind of nibbling into the market for kind of hardware stores, yes. that kind of thing. So, so I think uh, it's it's always it's always changing, and some of the retailers who are being kind of attacked by kind of Amazon now, if, if you want to frame it that way. Are the same one sometimes that, that were themselves you know, eating into other yes. other retailers' share <laughs> earlier on. Yes, that's that cyclical nature, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So hopefully we've inspired people to take a bit more notice and a bit more appreciation of retail history, Graham. But how can people find out more? How can they go and do their own research into into the history of retail? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> I think the best thing is to just go out and open your eyes, really, because if you um, if you if you wander around your local town, there are clues all over the place. And one of the nice things is to is to look up or to look down under your feet. And so if you're looking down, it might be that you see uh, a kind of mosaic in a doorway that has the brand of a of a former retailer on it. Mm. Or it might be that you're walking past a former Burton store and you still see the foundation stone there that was laid by a member of the Burton family. Wow. Equally, if you uh, if you pass a Woolworths, you'll spot the, the black granite that I mentioned before. So many of the Woolworths stores have that. And indeed, some of them still have um, have the mosaics as well in the doorway, some of the 60s stores. You know, or occasionally, if you look up, you might see some ghost letters. Yeah. Are the outlines of um, of retailers that used to be there. People on Twitter are, are always you know, uh, always tweeting me pictures of former Woolworth signs that have been uncovered. Usually, when a, a subsequent retailer moves out and uh, and you take off their sign, and then the Woolworth letters are, are suddenly revealed again. And, yes. And this kind of layering is is really interesting, and it gives you I don't know it gives you a bit of um, of an insight into the richness of places and and uh, and the fun way in which these fragments of the past you know often survive uh, even when the brands that they belong to are are long gone mm. and if that kind of thing inspires you uh, there's plenty of of material online just kind of uh, have a google have a look on ebay uh, have a look on on twitter indeed and there's and there's all kinds of people who uh, who love these kind of stories about the places and the businesses that are important to them because i think ultimately if um, if we understand a bit more about the past and a bit more about how the places that we care about have have come about, it makes it easier for us to see how these places you know, might evolve and what they might look like in the future. Mm. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So absolutely do open your eyes when you are out and about and you never know what you might find. And it does make me think, are we going to leave enough clues and enough little tidbits of architecture and, and detail for our, uh, our, f- our future retailers to be discovering in, in 50 or 100 years' time. Now, I wonder if uh, they'll, they'll be looking back and thinking, oh, look, it's this old Amazon box. <laughs> oh, look. 
But it's true. It's, it's an old Tesco Lego. And <laughs> it's an important it's an important question um, that comes from us having a more digital world, because obviously we don't necessarily have the physical footprints of things in the way that we used to, uh, even in terms of the, things like postcards and, and, and photographs and so on. But mm. I think you're right, certainly in terms of the retail landscape, uh, so many retailers these days are just uh, taking over premises that, that are already there. You don't have the, uh, the Woolworths or the Burtons or the Marks and Spencers uh, who are are kind of building their own stores in their distinctive style. Mm. Um, and it's it's a bit harder to get excited um, about a 1990s Tesco. Um, if you're a geek like me, you might go around and and uh, and spot a building and think that's an old Safeway, but it's it's quite a niche pursuit, and I don't think uh, I'm not sure people in uh, in thirty or forty years time are going to be quite so excited. Well, maybe they can tune back into this into the digital archives of uh, what will be this conversation in in the future and go go and explore some some fantastic uh, conversation points there, Graham. Thank you so much. How can people find out more about you? How can they get in touch? How can they follow you? Perhaps on on Twitter and, and websites and so on. Yeah, I'm 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 quite easy to Google, so I've, I've got a I've got a good name for Google. So it's it's Graham with an H and then Salt S O U L T. Um, if they find me on Twitter, that's where I share a lot of my insights and retail history uh, snippets. So I can be found on Twitter as just at Salt S O U L T. And equally, I'm on LinkedIn. And uh, if you want to find out more about my work, uh, you can go on on to CannyInsights.com, which is where I uh, I've got all my consultancy stuff there. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Graham. It's been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Are you feeling inspired by retail history? Do you want to go and find out a little bit more about perhaps the background of some of your favourite retailers or maybe your local places as well? I do hope you enjoyed the conversation there with Graham Salt. And I hope you do keep your eyes open a little bit more as you are walking around your local towns or cities or places. And if you enjoyed this episode, I've got four episodes for you to listen to. Firstly, take a listen to episode 150, number 150, where I dive into the ever-evolving world of retail. It's a fantastic view of some of the key shifts and changes that are happening, particularly driven by COVID, even though we didn't bleep out that word. (laughs) But it's a great episode. Do go and listen to episode 150. But then also do go and check out episode 101 with special guest James Bolly. And together we dive into why you need to have a purpose and how you can find it. And in there, we talk more about some of the elements we touched on today in terms of understanding the original story of your particular retail brand. In episode 59, I dived into what it takes to make a memorable retail experience. And having looked back and reminisced in this conversation, I thought that was a particularly relevant episode to highlight to you now. And then finally, way back into the archives, episode 21, where I asked the question, are you actually a mediocre retailer? Because of course, No one thinks that they are a boring substandard retailer, right? But are you? Do you actually have your head in the sand? And how can you recognize if you need to open your eyes, 
and change and transform to our ever-evolving world of retail. All of those four episodes are on the show notes today, which you can find at obandco.uk slash 152. That's obandco.uk slash 152. And if you do enjoy listening to the podcast, then I'd be eternally grateful for a review. If you could go onto your podcast app, if it offers the opportunity to give it a review, please do say a few kind words. And if you think it's worthy of a five-star rating, then I would be very thankful of you. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to joining you on another episode of the Retail Transformation Show very, very soon. Bye for now.